It's a lot of ice cream for the middle schoolers. I don't know if you caught that. Good luck, parents, when we send them home. There's a lot of celebrating that we're going to be doing over the course of the summer, and we have an opportunity to celebrate this morning as we participate in parent-child dedication. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with parent-child dedication, parent-child dedication is when we bring these kiddos up here and we give God thanks for them. We recognize they are a gift from God, and we want to acknowledge that gift today. We don't want to overlook it. We want to say thank you, God, for the gift of these kids. These parents also have come up here today in order to say, we are dedicating ourselves to the raising of these, to these kids in homes that are all about Jesus. We recognize they're going to need to make choices for themselves about following Jesus or following Jesus into the waters of baptism. But these parents are here to say, we're going to raise them in homes that are about Jesus and about the gospel. We also, as a congregation, are here today to say we're willing to respond to whatever God calls us to in the life of these kids. We want to be a church family that helps them know what it means to love, live, and serve like Jesus and to know him deeply. And of course, we're here this morning in order to pray for God's blessing on these kids, to pray for his gracious blessing, relationship with him, loving relationships with others. And so I want to turn it over to Nathan so that he can tell you who we have up here because you can't tell the players without a program. And so, Nathan, who are we dedicating this morning? Well, we've got some wonderful families. And actually, I'll ask Zach to introduce his family. I'm Zach Stebbing and my wife, Sadie Stebbing. You guys probably know her. And we're dedicating Lincoln today. And this is our oldest, Riley. My name is Jenna. Oh, sorry. <laughs> My name it. is Jenna Braun, and this is Derek Braun, and we are dedicating Emma, Emma today. Wonderful. Uh, parents, I have a couple of questions of dedication for you, uh, and if you'd respond, we do, uh, to the following questions. Do you recognize these children as gifts of God and give thanks to him for them? And do you pledge to bring these children up in the teaching of the Lord? And do you promise to pray for your children to place their faith in Jesus and live for him? And now, congregation, I'd like to ask you to respond to a couple of questions about our responsibility and privilege in the lives of these children. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me and respond, we do, to the following questions. Friendship Church... Do you promise to encourage these parents to be faithful in their God-given privilege of parenting? And do you promise to faithfully play any role that God calls you to in the discipleship of these children? That is a lot of babysitters. I heard him say any role. So ask any time. Absolutely. We want to dedicate these kids and pray over them. And so Nathan, why don't you go ahead and take that. Yeah, I'd like to just give a, a blessing. Let's start here with Lincoln. So, Lincoln, stabbing together with your parents who love you dearly, and this congregation that cares about the outcome of your faith, I dedicate you to God, surrendering together with them all worldly claim on your life in the hopes that you will belong wholly to Jesus Christ forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And then Emma, Emma, Emma Braun, how you doing, Emma? (laughs) 
together with your parents who love you dearly and this congregation that cares about the outcome of your faith, I dedicate you to God, surrendering together with them all worldly claim on your life in the hopes that you will belong wholly to Jesus Christ forever. And you all said? Amen. Amen. And if you could join me too in a prayer, maybe extend your hand. I'll I'll pray over these uh, families and these little ones. Uh, Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you that you make us new persons in Jesus Christ through grace alone. We pray for Emma and Lincoln. By your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would bless them, unfold to them the riches of your love, deepen their faith, keep them from the power of evil, enable them to live a holy and blameless life until your kingdom comes. We present them to you, to your protection, and to your saving and sanctifying grace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, Lord, we look with kindness on Derek and Jenna, on Zach and Sadie. Let them always rejoice in the gift you have given them. Grant them the ongoing presence of your Holy Spirit, that they may bring up these children to know you, love you, and serve you and their neighbor through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And again, all God's people said, Amen. 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 Thanks. Let's give them a round of applause. Thank you so much. How great is that? We have an opportunity this morning to celebrate with these families as they dedicate their kids to Jesus. Uh, And a couple of hours after our service is over, uh, I'm going to have an opportunity in order to be a part of a wedding ceremony with one of our couples, Alex and Jenny, as they join their lives together under Jesus Christ, and we celebrate that. Yes, that is why I have a tie on. I've been asked on multiple occasions. And tomorrow, uh, many of us will gather here and we will celebrate the life and the new life in Christ of Bob Alewine during his homegoing service. And even during that time, there will be celebration because he is at home with his Lord Jesus Christ. And so as followers of Jesus... There is celebration for us at every stage along the way, isn't there? When when there's new life in the home, when we join together in marriage, even upon death as we recognize that our loved one has gone to be with Jesus, there's celebration in that because of what Jesus does through the gospel. And that's what our sermon series is all about. This sermon series we call Romans Road is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And last week, As Kenny was looking at the first few verses of Romans chapter 6, he used a couple of Bible words over and over again, right? What were those Bible words that he used over and over again? One of them was justification, and the other Bible word that he used was sanctification, right? He used those words with us over and over again last week, justification and sanctification. And because those are words that we don't use a lot around the dinner table, Let's take a minute and make sure we understand what they mean. Right? What is 
justification. These are essential words for understanding this part of Romans and also to understanding the fullness of our salvation in Jesus, right? What is justification? Kenny had a great memory device he shared with us last week. Justification, just as if I never sinned, right? Justification is to be declared innocent or righteous by God. And when I've represented how justification takes place, I've often used these kindergarten drawings that you've become familiar with if you've been around here. Right? God made us to be in his image. And part of what that means is we were supposed to be little reflections of the character of God. God is love, we're told. And so what was supposed to be true in my life? I was in every thought, word, and deed meant to be perfectly loving and never selfish. God is truth. And so what was the design for humanity? That we would always be honest and never dishonest. That is part of what it means to be made in the image and the likeness of God. But we saw a couple of weeks ago that because of sin, that reality is broken. We're not perfectly within the image of God. Sin has created separation from our God, and we are now broken. We are dead in our sins. But because of the work of Jesus, what is possible? Justification. There's our word. Justification is possible where Jesus takes our sins and our punishment for those sins upon himself on the cross, and God credits us with the perfect righteousness of Jesus in our account. And so justification is that right now, as I stand in God's courtroom, I am declared to be perfectly right, perfectly innocent before God. How is that possible? Is it possible because I have been perfectly right every day of my life? You guys are all supposed to yell out no all at once. No way! Right? We know you. You're a bum. Oh, you don't have to go that far. Come on. Be nice to me. Right? It's possible because of this great trade that is described in our justification where Jesus' righteousness is credited to our account. Now, God loves us too much to just forgive us. He loves us too much to just justify us, and so he always brings us into new life in his spirit. And that new life in his spirit is what the Bible refers to as sanctification. We are growing in righteousness in our daily lives. God takes that brokenness in us, and his spirit begins to go to work on us with his tools, right? I got my little clip art tools up here on the screen. And the Spirit begins to cut off the rough edges of sin and pound out the dents of different idolatry in my life in order to bring my daily living back more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Right? The sanctification is that growth process. Not instant perfection, but growth more and more towards Jesus in our lives. Now, there were some in Paul's day who contended that you could have justification without sanctification. You could get the forgiveness without the obedience. You could have heaven without Jesus' lordship in your life. And Paul last week said, nope, that's not the case. And he used an illustration to drive that point home. What was that illustration? He used the Christian practice of baptism. And he says every time a person is baptized... They go down into the water that represents their death to sins, their death to their old life. And every time they're raised up out of the water that represents our new life in Jesus Christ. 
And they always go together. Every time I have baptized someone in my 23 years as a pastor, when I have put them down into the water, I have also brought them back up out. <laughs> right? Hold your applause. Nathan, is that true for you every time? Okay, good. Good. And Paul is using that illustration in order to say, yes, just like baptism, every time we put somebody under the water, they come back out. So in salvation through Jesus Christ, every time someone is forgiven and cleansed, they're brought back to new life in Jesus. A life of obedience, a life of his lordship. There are still people who are saying, well, but God saves by grace. He saves because he's perfectly forgiving. Why don't I just say a prayer, cash in that prayer at the judgment, and then live whatever way I want in between. I mean, if salvation isn't by my works, if salvation isn't by me being obedient to the law, but all about his grace, well, why don't I just take advantage of that grace and go ahead and live whatever way the world tells me in the meantime? I'll cash in that prayer at the judgment and get to live in heaven forever. And that's what drives the first question in our passage today, right? Romans chapter 6, verse 15 starts with this question. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Why not just sin? God's going to forgive us. He's perfectly forgiving. Come on. What's Paul's response to that? By no means. This is in the Greek an emphatic negation. It could be translated never, never, never. Let that never be true of our thinking. No way does a person take advantage of the grace of God who genuinely knows him and loves him. Or as the famous uh, New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce put it, to make being under grace an excuse for sinning is a sign that one is not really under grace. Or, as 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 puts it, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, why we walk the consistent direction of our life, why we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we claim that we've been saved by God, but yet continue to walk in sin and selfishness, as our primary motivations and actions in life, 1 John says, then we are lying. We haven't actually been saved by God because everyone who is justified is also what? Sanctified. Everyone who is forgiven enters into that life of obedience to Jesus. There are two paths Paul wants us to understand. A path of light and a path of darkness is what he said in 1 John chapter 1. And he's now going to describe those two paths while using the illustration of slavery. Okay, so watch what he says here about being enslaved to something or being addicted to something. He says, do you not know that if we present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Uh, I, I would just 
proclaim that over you. Thanks be to God for you. Right? You were once slaves to sin, and as I look out, I see eyeball after eyeball that is now slaves to God and to righteousness and has been set free in that. And it is a joy to be the pastor of so many people who are dedicated to God and dedicated to righteousness. Paul points out with this illustration of slavery, there are only two paths. There is the path of God and righteousness. There is the path of sin and slavery. And we've talked about those two paths throughout our study of Romans, haven't we? Do you remember the diagram we used to summarize the first four chapters of Romans? It looked something like this. We talked about the fact that all of us are born in selfishness and sin. We are all spiritually dead, but through faith in Jesus Christ, we can enter into a new path, a path of obedience and love. And ultimately, on the judgment day, those who remain on the path of sin and selfishness receive what Romans refers to as the wrath of God or the punishment for sins. And those who have, through faith in Jesus, entered that new path of obedience and love, they receive life forever with God and all that is good. And there are these two paths. But there were some in Paul's day and some in our day who would like to create a third path. A path where they can have the forgiveness of God, but continue to live for self. A path where they can experience his justification, but not need to worry at all about sanctification. Kind of a middle path, where I can pray a prayer, cashing in at the judgment, and live whatever way I want between then and now. And Paul wants us to understand there's no third path. That's why 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Right? Did you catch that? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. But you were what? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Why can't the sexually immoral, the greedy, those who use their words to tear others down, why can't they inherit the kingdom of God? Is it because those sins are too big for God to forgive? No, of course not. God can forgive any sin. As a matter of fact, what Paul is saying to these people is, you used to be like that, but you've been forgiven. You've been cleansed. So why can't they inherit the kingdom of God? Because they have continued in those sins. Right? They continue to walk in those sins as the patterns of their life. And what that shows is they've never been saved. That's why Galatians chapter 5 says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why can't they inherit the kingdom of God? Because these sins are unforgivable? No, that's not the reason. God can forgive any sin. The reason that they can't inherit the kingdom of God is because they have continued in anger. 
They have continued to cause divisions among people in the church. Right? They have continued to use their words to hurt other people. They have continued in sexual... They've continued to walk in sin, and it is a sign that you've never experienced the genuine save salvation of Jesus Christ. Because everyone who is justified is also what? Sanctified. Sanctified. And so what kind of life is that sanctified life? What's the next verse say after this? In Galatians 5, you know it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here is what the character of the person who is saved begins to look like. It's what they grow in as they know Jesus. The person who has been forgiven enters into this life bearing this fruit. Do they enter into a life of immediate instant perfection? No. Right? Fruit are not produced instantly on a tree. They grow up over time. And in that same way, these fruit are produced over time in our lives as we grow more and more in our, uh, in our love for God and our closeness to Him. Paul calls everyone in the church to examine their life to see which path they are on. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, he writes to a bunch of church people, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Right? What is the test? The test is, am I being sanctified? Right? My justification is proven true. It's not caused by my works, but it is proven true by the sanctification that is taking place in my life. And so as I look at my life, do I see those fruit growing in me? As I look at my life, do I see that I am growing more and more enslaved to God and righteousness instead of to sin? Now, Paul has used this illustration of slavery to talk about these two pathways. It's an illustration, and he wants us to understand that we shouldn't push this illustration about slavery too far. And so in the first part of verse 19, he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. He's like, okay, in order to communicate to you, I'm using an illustration. And good teachers use illustrations or metaphors in order to help people dig in deeper into a particular subject. But they are just illustrations or metaphors and not the actual, and they shouldn't be pushed too far. And Paul is saying, don't push this slavery illustration too far. There are big differences between human slavery, as it was practiced 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire, and slavery to God and righteousness, as is being talked about here in Romans. Three things came to my mind right away as I thought about the differences in uh, human slavery versus slavery to God and righteousness. The first is this. Slavery to God has a different motivation. Verse 17 says that they are now obedient from the what? Obedient from the heart. They want to be obedient. They desire to be obedient to God now. Slavery in human institutions, a person is obedient because they have to. They are obligated to. 
But when we enter into relationship with God and recognize what He has done, we want to be obedient to Him. Does that mean we always are? Nope, we're going to see that in a couple of weeks. But we have this desire to be obedient to Him. When I get home this afternoon, let's say I beat my wife home, and when I get home, the dog has taken a bunch of papers and chewed them up and scattered them all over the living room. What am I going to do? Right? What am I going to do? I guess some of you are like, walk away. Yep. Kick the dog, I heard. Yep. Right? No, I'm going I'm to clean up those papers. Why? Because I have to? I'm going to clean up those papers because I'll get in really big trouble with her if I don't? No, I'm going to clean up those papers because I love her and I don't want her to have to do it. Right? I act out of what is in my heart. A heart that loves her and desires to do things that are best for her. And in the same way, when we are enslaved to God and to righteousness, we have a heart that, that longs to do what he calls us to do. A desire. So we have a different motivation. Second, slavery to God is slavery to a good master. Often, within the Roman Empire, people were enslaved by people who would mistreat them. Who would use them. And they didn't have a lot of options in those situations. But when the Bible talks about us being enslaved or, or addicted to God and to righteousness, we are enslaved to a good master, one who loves us in the midst of our sins, who then died so that we could be saved. A master who ultimately says, I want your best. In every situation, I am going to work towards your best. Right? We have an enslavement to a very good master who ultimately seeks our best in every situation. And finally, slavery to God is good for us. Slavery to God is good for us. There are enslavements and addictions in this life that are bad for us and some that are good for us. And the difference is whether or not God intended us to be enslaved to that thing. So I learned very firsthand about um, how terrible enslavement to tobacco can be by watching Erica's stepdad, who smoked from the time of his early teenage years, who reached a place where his doctor said, if you continue to smoke, you will be dead in a certain amount of time. And so he stopped smoking. But the addiction was so strong, he began to chew. And after a certain period of time chewing, he developed cancer in his jaw and in his face and had to have a large section of his face removed. But even that didn't stop the cancer. And ultimately, it took his life. Because we weren't designed for that addiction. We, we weren't designed to be enslaved to tobacco. And what it does is harm our bodies. It, it, it ultimately, in his case, led him to a place of death, which is precisely what Paul is saying about slavery to sin and impurity. You weren't designed for that. It does harm to you as a person, and ultimately it leads to the place of death. Now, I have a different kind of slavery in my life that I've shared with you before. I am addicted to breathing. I am enslaved to this practice of breathing in my life. A couple of times I've become acutely aware of it while wrestling with other people in the water and they've held me under. 
And I've begun to kick and claw and punch and whatever it takes in order to get back up on top of the water because of this deep addiction I have to breathing. I'm going to go ahead and guess you share that addiction. If you don't think you do, hold your breath for the next 10 minutes and see what happens because we all have this addiction. And it is an addiction that is good for us. It's life-giving. We were designed to have this addiction in our life. We were designed to be enslaved to breathing. Because of that, it brings health. It brings life. And in the same way, we were designed to be addicted to God and to righteousness. And when we are enslaved to Him, it brings health. It brings life to us. So we seek to be fully enslaved to our God and to righteousness. Now, the rest of verse 19, well, that was the first part of verse 19, the rest of verse 19 talks about the role that God has given to us in growing to become more like Him. The second half of verse 19 says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. This is a command. And the command shows us that God has given us a role to play in our sanctification. Ultimately, it is God who sanctifies us. It is God who transforms us. But every person who is justified and forgiven will enter into the process of sanctification and they will play their role in the process of being sanctified. Now, what is that role? What is that role that he has given to us? Well, let me break this down into two parts that come out of this verse. The first is, don't present yourself to sin and impurity. Don't present yourself to sin and impurity. What does it mean to present yourself? If a soldier presents themselves to the king, what are they doing? They're coming right into the presence of the king, into close proximity with the king. If I today were to present you with a steaming hot plate of chocolate chip cookies, right? What am I doing? I'm bringing those cookies right there into your presence, right there into close proximity with you. And God wants us to understand that the first part of our role in being sanctified is to not bring ourselves into close proximity, into the presence of sin and impurity, we're to stay away from it. We're to not fill our eyes, ears, minds, and hearts with it. Uh, there's a fictional journal that I found that talks about how we stay away from it that I love. It says, uh, day one of this fictional journal, I went for a walk down a street and I fell into a hole. I didn't see it coming. It took me a long time to get out. It's not my fault. Day two, I went for a walk down the same street, and I fell in the same hole. It took me a long time to get out. Why did I do that? That was so stupid. Day three, I went for a walk down the same street and fell in the same hole. I got out quickly this time. I think this is my fault. Day four, I took a walk down the same street. I saw the hole. I walked around it. Hey, hey, hey. Day five, this is my favorite day, day five, I went for a walk down a different street. I'm tired of being around that hole. Every time I go down that street, something is sucking me down that hole. I hate that hole. I don't want to be by it anymore. Right? You've walked down those streets. 
those streets where you have the remote in your hand and you know that if you go down that street, there is a hole waiting for you. And Paul says, don't go down that street. Don't put yourself in the proximity of that sin. Where, where you sit down at the computer and there's a click and, and clicks away is a street that you don't need to go down because there is a hole down that street. And Paul says, don't put yourself, your eyes, your ears, your mind, your heart in proximity to that. You know certain people that when you have conversations with them are constantly trying to lead you into gossip, grumbling, complaining, and you know it's down that street. And Paul says, don't go down that street. There's a hole down that street. And on and on I could go. Right? We, we know there are these streets. Don't present yourself. Don't be in proximity with those sins in your life. Instead, present yourself to God in righteousness. Be in close proximity with God and righteousness. Spend time with God and the things of righteousness. You notice that the verse said, present your members. Right? What does that mean, present your members? The Greek word for members means the parts of our body. Our, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our minds, our hearts. Present those things to God. What you put in your eyes, what you put in your ears, right? what you put in your mind, what you put in your heart, let it be of God and the things of God. It is impossible to put the things of sin and selfishness and the world in our eyes, our ears, our mind, and our heart and somehow see sanctification be the product. It's not the way God's designed it. What does he say in Galatians? Right? God will not be mocked. Right? Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. A person will reap what they sow. We cannot sow in the flesh and expect to get the Spirit. So Paul says, the role that you have to play in your sanctification is what? Don't present yourself to the things of sin and impurity. Instead, present yourself to God and righteousness. Romans 12, 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Put those things in your mind, and God's Spirit transforms you through them. Psalm 119, 11, your word have I treasured in my heart, that I might not sin against you. God's Spirit uses those things, His word put in our minds and our hearts. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. No one becomes more like Jesus by presenting their members, their eyes, ears, mind, and heart to the things of sin and selfishness, only by presenting those things to the things of God and righteousness. That's the way he has designed it, and we have a role to play. And when we play that role, we begin to harvest the fruit of sanctification. Look at this. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You didn't do righteousness when you were slaves to sin. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Before Christ, you lived and acted in a way that now you find embarrassing. The word he uses is ashamed. Right? We, we look at our pre-Christ life and we go, what a waste. Why were we doing that? And now that we have life in Christ, we say, ah, what was I doing back then? Christ has given us a totally new way to see the world in a totally new life. And he produces this fruit in us like love and joy and peace as we seek him and pursue him.
But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. You have a part in the process, but he produces the fruit. Ultimately, in case we're getting a little too big for our britches, with this idea that we have a role to play, he's going to bring us back so that we understand this is about God and his grace. Right? Just because we have a role to play doesn't mean we deserve anything. Well, well, actually, there is something we deserve, and he tells us, next verse, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What do I deserve? Right? What I deserve for what I have done, that's what wages are, right? What I should get paid for what I've done is death, separation from God because of my sinfulness and my selfishness. I don't deserve anything, but God has given us, through his grace, a free gift. The gift of forgiveness. The gift of daily transformation through the power of his Holy Spirit. He's given us that amazing grace and that amazing gift. Have you received that gift? Right? Have you received that gift? I, I want to invite you all, would you just bow your heads with me for a minute? And I want to give us an opportunity with God to be obedient to 2 Corinthians 13, 5 that asked us to examine our lives and see what path we are on. To see whether or not we belong to Him. If you place your trust in Him as your Lord and King, if you turn your life over to Him, you can be declared righteous by God and receive his Holy Spirit to make your daily life new. Is today that day when you repent? God, I, I don't want to live for self anymore. God, I don't want to live pursuing the idols of the world. God, I don't want this sin anymore. Instead, I want you to be the pursuit of my life. I want you as Lord and King over me. Is today that day of repentance, of turning away from self and turning to God as ruler of your life? If today is that day, I want to encourage you to indicate that on the connect cards that you were given on the way in. There's a place you can indicate that on there. And what the New Testament teaches us, the next step for people who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior is to declare it in the waters of baptism. We have a baptism coming up. And so if you're interested in declaring this before everyone, let me encourage you to indicate that on that card as well. God has given us a regular practice that we enter into as his followers to remember what he's done so that we can be justified and we can be sanctified. To remember what he's done so that we can be forgiven and enter into a life of obedience where we love him and love others. That practice is called communion or the Lord's Supper and we're going to enter into a time of 
taking those elements now. I'd encourage you as we worship God in song, as we praise his name in song, when your heart is ready to make your way over to the tables that are in the corners of the room, and if you take the bread and take the cup and bring it back to your seat, I'll lead us in the taking of those elements in just a few minutes. Let's praise God together.